Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening. Wherever you are in the world, I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Robert? Today, Russell, I am feeling mm, chef's kiss. Just <laughs> so perfect, so excellent, so fabulous. And that is because <laughs> we have in our midst someone that knows definitely about the art of food, but they also know about hoarding, collecting, because I've actually heard them. They are self-confessed hoarder. And I think that even includes um, items in the kitchen, such as ceramics and all kinds of things. Knives. Uh, knives. Knife yeah, knives. Yeah. Maybe knives, yeah. And mm. um, pots and pans. But also they love art and design and um, all kinds of things, including sneakers even. So yeah, I am very excited. We have got the chef from Queer Eye. He's also uh, an award-winning published author and has done cookbooks and all kinds of amazing things. And he grew up in Canada, in Montreal, which is where I spent loads of my time as a teenager. And I think I've even been to the school where he went to school at, uh, possibly like St. Lawrence. It's so strange. It's like the weirdest thing. And it's brought back so many happy memories um, researching today's guest. So I can't wait to talk about Canada. I didn't study there though, because his face right now is like, oh my God. I was there though when I was a student, I'll, I'll explain. Um, yeah, so we're very, very proud and excited. I know a lot of our friends are freaking out about today's guest because they love him so much. So you're very much in a loving space. So we would like to welcome to Talk Art, the one and only Anthony, Anthony Porofsky. Wow, beautifully in tandem. Thank you. <laughs> we're singing for you. <laughs> Thanks, Anthony. I'm good. Wait, what's this? What's this St. Lawrence business? So basically, I went to a school in England in Reading, and they did uh, international public speaking. And I used to have to do things like impromptu, where they'd give you a word like, or, or a sentence like, I'm walking the dog. And then you had to speak for like 10 minutes in public about walking the dog with no prior preparation. So it kind of worked well for podcasting. Um, and I ended <laughs> up winning, winning that competition. And I did it all over the world. But we went to Toronto first, and then Montreal. And in Montreal is when I, I got the award for like best international public speaker and I can't remember what school it was either Dawson or St Lawrence but I know that students from both schools like participated in it and when I heard oh. you mention St Lawrence it reminded me of like Westmount and like Dave Kaufman who I used to live with and Amy Amy his sister and all these people Tara Curry lots of different Canadians Okay, so the reason I made such a very expressive face is because St. Lawrence was actually the elementary school that I went to on the South Shore. 
but for oh. you're probably referring to so Dawson is a is a co- is a public college. Marionopolis is like the second one that's like a private college. Oh yeah, maybe maybe it's Dawson then. Yeah, I, I thought St Lawrence. For some reason St Lawrence really reminded me of Montreal. That would have been know. extremely random. Yeah, that's not. Oh well. Anyway, elementary school. Oh, hang on a minute. Sure, just clear this anyway, up, Rob. What would you do? Just talk absolute twaddle for ten minutes about walking yeah. a dog. And I was really good at it. So much so <laughs> that makes total award. sense. It makes total sense. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. anyway, brilliant. Congratulations for winning that award, Rob. Anthony, where do we find you in the world? So currently in... Why am I looking around? Like I'm questioning where I am. Um, I'm in New York, yeah. uh, which is home. I've been here for about somewhere between 12 and 14 years and originally from Montreal. Amazing. Well, we met, luckily, yeah. I was... Well, luckily for me, the other day we was in Los Angeles. I was over there uh, filming and we happened to go to a Versace, just happened to pass by a Versace, Donatella Versace. Very normal. Very normal uh, (laughs) catwalk runway show. And we started talking and I realized that you have a huge background in art history. You are someone that knows a lot about art, right? (laughs) I know. Okay. Now you're freaking me out because I feel I'm already a little intimidated coming in. Okay. It's kind of like, it's one of those things where like, I know what I know if that makes sense. Like, I know what I'm passionate about and what I'm drawn to. But when I was in uh, in uni um, at Concordia, I was um, studying psychology. All my electives, I or at least two or three of them I took, I forget his name and I was trying to look him up, but he really changed my life. He was a art history teacher from New York and he was like this older gay dude in his 70s and the way that he would talk about New York and all these important pieces that I hadn't even seen yet. I'd never been to the Met or MoMA or I was with my sister, but I was like, I was like an asshole kid. Like I wasn't paying attention to anything and I didn't really care. And he was, I don't know, he was like really inspiring. And when I went to move to New York and I, you know, went to all these museums and started seeing all these pieces that I wrote papers on and that he would talk about with such passion, it just kind of, just kind of like reignited that 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 interest i guess can you remember some of the works that he was passionate about that got you excited definitely um okay if i get if i get names of pieces wrong because i don't have i don't want to be googling so that i get it right so please tell me if i'm wrong uh between the two of you i won't be offended <laughs> well we're not complete experts what... either we, we, <laughs> no, exactly. no, we want to okay. learn and also you. that's the whole point of the podcast because yeah. it's meant because there is this weird phenomenon that people get really freaked out when they hear about art when actually everyone does have their own experience and that's what we want to hear because it can be incredibly intimidating yeah for sure one of the first pieces i think oh okay definitely because uh russell you and i talked about her um a little bit louise nevelson just heard i was an, I, so i was a crazy lego fan as a kid and i loved building um all of these like cities in my room with myself Aww. uh when i wasn't out like running around with my friends around the block and there was something about her pieces that were just like very nostalgic of that and then I remember when I went to, um, they have this huge Nevelson piece at, um, so for anybody who doesn't know, and if I'm not explaining it correctly, I'm going to stop apologizing for myself. I'm going to stop being Canadian <laughs> for the next hour. Um, she basically was an artist in the meatpacking district and she would go around all of these like different factories and stuff and find all of this like debris and pieces of wood. And she would basically create all of these like puzzly type pieces that had all kinds of like different cogs and wooden wheels and that kind of stuff. And then she would paint them very often in black, but other colors as well. So they're like super monochromatic. But when you look, you can just kind of see like the relief and the texture of it. And I was just really drawn to it because it was something very like childlike and fun about it. I remember we looked at some of uh, Picasso's blue period, but I remember seeing, uh, is it Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, like the dancing women, Picasso? 
which is at MoMA, I believe, massive piece, a lot of abstract expressionism. So like some Pollock, we studied Riappel, who's a um, not only the name of a fantastic Quebec cheese, um, <laughs> uh, slightly un- unpasteurized, but also an abstract expressionist artist from Canada who used to be the background of my phone until I changed it to my fiance hiking in Peru. But um, that's neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> and then what else? Wait, and there was another one. Was it Giacomo Bella? Bello? It's a it's a famous like a it's like a torch light that just like is emanating this like light and heat, and it just looks like it's glowing. But when you see it in person, it's just like, it's so striking. And I saw it on black and white paper for years. And then I got to see it at MoMA for the first time. And then I think he also might have done this piece that was sort of cubist. That was like a sculpture of like this man kind of like leaning in that reminded me of transform. Wow, I realize a lot of art that I'm drawn to makes me think of childhood, which is interesting. I never really thought of that. But it made me think of transformers, the way that they would morph from these like humanoid type robots into these shapes. I'm really going to want to look up the piece now, but it was, it's in the same wing where they have Picasso's violin and some other pieces that are, that are kind of like so There's that. a lot of cubism going on here. There's a lot of kind of the, the Picassos you're talking about are part of his cubist period, like the geometric yes. period. And obviously I want to go back to Louise Nevelson because when, when we spoke and you mentioned her, I went off and did uh, a lot more research because she's been someone that I really enjoy. I've seen there's a uh, work at the Whitney and then there's um, you talked about visiting a room at the Met that was not, permanently on display and this this room is called mrs n's palace that was made between 1964 and 77 will you talk about that installation for us yeah so i think it was commissioned for the met if i'm not mistaken because it's a huge piece and it's not always there and they had reached out a while back because i was there on my own and i tagged the museum and they asked if i wanted to come back for like a nighttime private tour situation and so, um, so I went back and I got to like step inside, which was really cool. Oh, wow. um, and it was literally just an entire room filled with, I mean, it's one large piece, but it just felt like a million different pieces of hers. And uh, Pace Gallery actually had a really beautiful show. I think it was, this is pre-pandemic, so probably three or four years ago at least, where they had her massive wall units. <gasps> I just remembered something else. So when I was a waiter um, at Bond Street, way before Queer Eye, I was hired to go to Reed and Delphine Krakow's home. So Reed Krakow was, I think he was a creative director of Coach. And Delphine is like a huge art collector and um, interior designer. And I went to their house just to like literally serve sushi to their guests. And I come in and I see a bunch of, I'm also obsessed with with the Lalans, all those like oh, yeah. wonderful the animals, sheep, oh, yeah. the sheep and, and the, the gorillas sheep and all yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're wild. Yeah. Well, that's I'm that's the design art of, crossover, isn't it? That Lalande feels like, yes, yeah. Yes, 100%, yeah. which for me, I'm definitely more interested or more obsessive about furniture than I am art, probably because I can't afford the art that I really want to have. Um, and furniture is a little more attainable. Or the but, space, because um, Louise or the space, Or the space, actually, <laughs> fair, fair point. And I walked, into a, I walked into this room and there was like a flock of sheep and then I look and it was at the time, the largest Nevelson. It was like a, those wall unit sculptures, just like sitting there resting against a wall. And I was just like, oh my gosh, it was just so stunning. So you have this like massive black structure and then you have these beautiful sheep that are just like right in front wow. that are just like walking around. It Whoa. was it was just stunning. Why did she and paint it? you're the proud it? owner of what? Oh yeah. It's a little oiseau uh, à l'oeuf. It's like a little, it's, a, it's an egg cup. That's like a little porcelain, like a white porcelain egg cup that's in the shape of a bird that I don't put eggs in, but it sits on my uh, library wall with like other books. 
That's so nice. Why, why did Louise paint everything black? What are these things she found on the street and from the factories? What was it about like making it monochrome, that color? Do you know? I have no idea. Do you know? No, are I you about know. to tell me? No, I, oh. I, I, I've always... Because she, she, I always assume when I look at them that she assembles them all together, then just sprays it black. But she actually acquires yeah. the objects, painted them all black, and then pieced them together individually and then yeah. puts them together yeah so wow. from watching videos on her it's like she she found the objects they were interesting shapes and then she just sprayed them black and then they were all ready to go straight away for her but she loved new york and i feel like you're someone mm-hmm. that loves new york she described new york as my mirror and i feel like for you new york is your mirror new york is where you kind of get all your inspiration from 100 percent. whether it's food or or i mean literally anything i i'm i'm a proud montrealer i thought i was going to spend my whole life there and when i moved here originally um to go to theater school actually to conservatory i was like okay i'm going to be here two to three years i'll like do the thing and then i'm going to end up back in montreal and i fell madly in love with the city i always kind of compared new york to uh, montreal it's it's kind of like new york is basically montreal on steroids both are incredibly diverse new york is just much more heavily populated and a lot bigger but I get that I get that comfort here of kind of being lost. It's it, it's a comfort zone for me when there's like a vast amount of culture and it's not just too homogenized. There's something that's kind of it's not. I, I like being uncomfortable, and New York does that to me. And it feels creatively fertile. It always feels like this. There's, there's yeah. like whenever I've spent time there, like every day, every night, there's an opening. There's an incredible groundbreaking solo exhibition going on or something that you're just like it's world class art is always being seen there. Do you find it hard to keep up with everything? 100%. But it's also like just the the stories and the history, I think. I lived in Clinton Hill for about seven years. And Pratt Institute, um, which is a, a college, a university, which is right next door. And I remember reading Patti Smith's M Train. And she was writing about when she first met Robert Maplethorpe and like stumbled into his apartment. And I remember the street name. And I was like, holy shit, that's literally two blocks away <laughs> from where I live. And I ended up like walking there and the door was closed. Obviously, I wasn't going to walk in and be a freak, but it was just there. And then, you know, now I'm living downtown and I'm like pretty close to um, it's either Bond Street or Great Jones where Basquiat had his studio. Great Jones. So it's just like there, there's little moments of that kind of everywhere. It's the, it's the history that I think I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to. Maplethorpe had a studio on Bond Street. That was the one that. And he did too. Right. Sam right, right. and Wagstaff bought for him. That was where his big loft was. Right. Okay. Yeah. Now I'm remembering the documentaries that I saw. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah. Actually, you reference that's referenced in American Horror Story, isn't it, Russ? Uh, kind of. Yes. Like well, Maplethorpe studio. Maplethorpe and... sort of character. There's there's a, a character based on Maplethorpe and a character based on Sam Wagstaff that uh, yeah. Zachary Quinto hmm. played. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I was looking into Louise Nevelson. So the reason she painted her work black was because she'd been um, traveling a lot and she went to Mexico and Guatemala in the early 1950s and late 1940s. And I think that started to inspire her to work with wood and this kind of idea of like wooden landscape sculptures. And she was really obsessed with shadow and space and the kind of meeting of the two. So by painting everything in black, which started in the mid 1950s for her, that became something that then went on to characterize all of her work and it was this interest in sculpture and space and shadow so that's apparently that, that totally makes sense because yeah. from afar it's these just these large you know mostly black structures and then as soon as you kind of step in a little closer you start to see all the detail and i love anything that kind of like pulls me in like that where at first it seems like one thing 
And then you're there and you're like, oh, there's so many cool little things to look at. It's actually not dissimilar to New York. And that was kind of the point of the work, I think. It says here that she was really interested in the external world becoming a personal landscape. So it's like mm. you take all these objects from the world at large, she puts them together and that becomes like a portrait somehow through her eyes, which is such a beautiful thing. And she was big into recycling. Yes. All sustainable, sustainable. back there. Yeah. Sustainable art. Yes. <laughs> well, she also didn't sell any of her work until she's in her 40s, uh, only to friends. And then it wasn't until her 60s that she was conceded as uh, having the stature as one of America's foremost sculptors. And uh, there was another quote of hers, which I loved, which said, um, you know, when she was struggling through trying to make a career as an artist, she said, I never had breakdowns. Other people had breakdowns. I couldn't afford it. And I thought that was quite, <laughs> when I heard that, wow. I was like, that's pretty like, what a brain to be like. <laughs> I, I know I need to have a breakdown now. Something's happening, but I can't afford it. So I just keep going. Yeah. Well, because she was, I think, gosh, I was reading her. Her book a long time ago she was either hungarian or ukrainian i think she's ukrainian yeah ukrainian yeah yeah yeah. and do we know like did she was she born here did she emigrate here when she was younger she came over with her father uh when she was a okay. kid she emigrated, emigrated yeah in 1905 and she's from um tsarist russia she was, to the united yeah States. she was determined wow. to learn to be american to learn english because she felt like if you wasn't speaking that you were othered completely and uh, mm -hmm. so she was like determined to be an American when she got here. Yeah. And actually her childhood was in Maine, a place that I love a lot. Um, she was in Rockland, Maine. And um, in 1920, she moved to New York. So, yeah, she would have been walking the same streets as you. Aunt. Wow. <laughs> She's so striking, too. If you see photos of her, she always yeah. had like the, the dark, like under eye mm -hmm. makeup and like the crazy hats. Always with yeah, a totally cig always got a woman. cigarette on the go. Constantly smoking. Love. Love. Yeah. <laughs> Can we also talk about... Can we also talk about this this um, artwork, Streetlight, by Giacomo Balla? Because I've, yeah. I've found that now. I didn't know that before. No, me neither. He's obviously an Italian futurist painter. I'd heard of him, but I'd never actually seen that painting for some reason. It's extraordinary. What an amazing mm -hmm. painting. So it's like all right? the tiny shards of light in a way. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like... And I think that the so, colors kind of change as you go out, right? Yeah. yeah, it's got lots of reds and blues, and it's even got what looks like a moon or something in there. Mm -hmm. like oh yeah that's it intense work. rob's holding it up so yeah. how did you how did you discover that where, where did you first see it they look like little shrimp too um that was actually <laughs> that was my teacher i want to figure out his name and now i really want to find him but he was the one who um yeah he just i i I'm, i don't even remember i wish i kept all my notes from college but i remember just something about that piece just that street light it reminded me wait it reminded me of a book like I said earlier, everything is nostalgic. It made me think of um, Exupéry's The Little Prince. Oh, um, yes. You know, when he's going through all of the stories and there was one of them about the man who would like go and light up all of the, the light posts or the lamp posts at night because he visits yeah. like an accountant and a banker and then like the light guy. And so that's that's why it stuck to me. Very cool. I, I also like this idea of like, he was really interested in what was next. Like he, he didn't really want to look back at the past. He was excited about innovation and kind of what was the modern age. And it's yeah. Kind of an amazing, joyous painting. And also we've never spoken about any of these no. artworks on this show. So this is like oh, so cool. exciting for us. You're teaching us. I'm oh, really awesome. Thanks, Anthony. And that's at the moment now in New York. <laughs> sure. It's in their, their collection. <laughs> what, is there a national gallery in Montreal that you would visit as a kid? You said that you would go there to certain ones and not be that interested. But it, what, what is the scene there? That's a really good question. 
unfortunately, the time when I would have paid attention to that, I was in college and literally just drinking six nights a week and procrastinating for finals and for papers. But um, there's the Musée des Beaux-Arts, um, which is really big. There's a really big and very affordable uh, vintage furniture district. As I mentioned earlier, that's something that I'm very passionate about as well. Because um, it's useful, it's beautiful, and you can like sit in it or put your coffee cup on a nice table or whatever it is um, on Amherst Street. And so there's a lot of, that's where I got interest, uh, that's where I got kind of introduced to sort of like Frank Lloyd Wright when he was working with Henry Dunn and had these like little detailed pieces, like little side tables and stuff. And then Herman Miller and Eames and all of that. First piece ever, not that you asked. Um, <laughs> the first two pieces that I ever bought myself, there was a pendant by uh, Jakobsen, who's a, a Danish Arna, uh, Arna lighting Jakobsen. designer. Arna, yeah. yeah. But it was super beat up because uh, that's the only way that I could afford it. So it had either like copper or these like brass rings and it kind of looked like a beautiful honeycomb and the light that would emanate from it. It was just stunning. And I put an Edison bulb in it just so that it would have that soft glow. And then I got those classic green resin Herman Miller chairs with the, um, I think they're the Eiffel Tower base in this beautiful like dark green color, which I actually still have there in my bedroom they're, right they're now. The and I love looking at the chair, classic Herman Miller, dining chair the metal. resin ones that look like they should be in a school. D- yes. DCMs, I think they are, dining chairs or the other ones. Yes, amazing. Yeah, and they're stackable if you have like the regular four four foot frame. And, um, and I love looking at them because I just like look at them and I remember the first apartment that I ever had that got broken into twice in a year. But they didn't steal the chairs. They didn't. They didn't. didn't but they stole a bunch them. of IKEA things that I had. But they didn't steal these More like, beautiful them. pieces, right? Because fuck them. Fuck them. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, this is re- this is, this feels like a real sweet spot for you, like design and art crossing over. I've I've, I've got a quote mm-hmm. here where you said, "Slowly and surely, I've been buying all of my dream pieces, the stuff I've always wanted to have," which is such a beautiful yeah. thing to gift yourself and to do, and obviously, like heavily research it and look at design all the time and i think at one point you were mm-hmm. dealing vintage furniture yourself yeah this is obviously a, a wonderful thing do they become like um i've always said we always say like when you collect authentically anything it becomes like a self-portrait or it becomes a diary so would you look at these like you've just said you looked at these chairs and it reminds you of the time that yeah you got broken into but it's still a time when you had this apartment and memories are these collected um through like projects and every season of Queer Eye, for example, would you acquire something? Pretty much. I think, you know, just with the evolution of kind of like how I got into furniture. So I was um, a personal assistant for Ted Allen, who's the original uh, food and wine expert on Queer Eye, you know, not knowing that I was going to end up literally doing his job on the reboot of the second iteration of the show and his husband. So Ted and Barry are massive, massive furniture fans um especially anything that's kind of like brutalist american like paul evans um or anything from like the 70s and 80s i call it cocaine furniture because a lot of it is like chrome with like mirrored and like (laughs) that kind of stuff that you would see in like scarface it's a little (laughs) aggressive but it tracks if you see it and um and so i was working for ted and his husband barry rice um was an interior designer and collector and that's how i started kind of like getting introduced to pieces and he would started his own gallery that he ended up going on first dibs it was called full circle modern and so i learned how to photograph i can't take a picture for shit uh but furniture is a lot easier because it's a lot easier to like kind of control lighting and stuff and so i started learning about furniture more and more and then um uh someone by the name of howard williams who has uh, a gallery in the city called high style deco um, he started out in deco, but then he's moved into mid-century and a lot of like brutalism and stuff too, but still does a lot of French and American deco. And so I worked with him for a year 
and then ended up booking Queer Eye as I was working for him. And so it just kind of, it like weirdly kind of evolved into that, but that didn't answer your question. Yes, the memoir, sorry, severe ADD, but I got back. I've never stepped outside to kind of see it that way, but I think it totally makes sense. Whenever I feel like I'm not, so I'm not a big shopper. Clothing for me is like not something that gets me super excited. My two favorite things are either scouring first dibs or live auctioneers or eBay for smaller pieces or going to a grocery store or like any type of market. And I remember when I first, when Queer Eye first came out, it was, you know, still renting an apartment. It wasn't furnished with anything except the furniture that already came in it. And I saw, so I'm obsessed with, is it okay if I talk about furniture for a little bit? We love it. We're living okay, okay, great. Please. Russell's so, just obsessed as you are and I've become obsessed. Okay. I'm obsessed. I've always loved, uh, always since I was introduced to his work, Jacques Adnet, so who was like a French, I guess like early 40s? Loads of leather, all the stitched leather lamps and stuff. Obsessed. (sighs) Wait, I'm going to show you. This is a table lamp that I got. Wait, can you see it? Yeah, hot. Love that. Oh, that's the shade. So that's like a really uncommon shade. Wow. And then it's like a little, it's, it's that classic black leather with yeah. like the baseball stitching along the edge and the yes. brass is in beautiful condition. So that I got at the Paris Fleas. But the first thing that I ever bought myself, I got an endorsement and I literally blew the entire thing on a pair of, and red is not really my color, but it's like this dark burgundy red, these um, easy cha- easy safari chairs. So they're red leather clad, again, with the baseball stitching. Um, and it was a pair of those. And I was so like, every single time I walk by those, I look at them and I'm just like, and no one ever sits in them because it's like we have a big sectional couch with the TV and the two chairs are in front purposefully so we can see them, but they don't get used yeah. as much. <laughs> so they can just stay like immaculate I, and beautiful. But it's like, yeah, furniture does it for me. I feel like the Adnet and, and you talking about them red chairs and the baseball mitt makes me think of the Eames lounge chair, which was designed as, and you know, the, the, the standard, the big like leather lounge chair that has the sectional bits. It yeah. looks like a, a beetle on the back, but the front... He designed it to be like a baseball mitt. So they, so it feels like you can yeah. sit comfortably in it. That's and that, so true. Yes, yeah, so it's a baseball mitt. So then when you look at them lamps, the Adnet lamps and the leather of those and the stitching, it has this old baseball kind of like pre-war quality to them. And they age really well and they kind yeah. of scuff up. But when they scuff up, it kind of adds character to them. Totally. Oh, when they're beat up, like if you walk into a Tom Brown store, he's mm-hmm. a big Adnet fan. He's got tons of great, great chairs and desks and all of it. And what's interesting about that too is that even though I'm Canadian, but I've been in the U.S. for so long, I love anything that's American. I've been obsessed since I was a little kid. And even though I never played uh, baseball because group sports weren't for me, um, I was much more of like a tennis or a swimming type where I couldn't re- didn't have to rely on other people. But like the baseball is like so iconically American, and it's so interesting. I've never heard of Adne like in relation to anything that's like Americana, which is, which is super interesting. There's your mm. link. So ha- as a self-professed hoarder as well, then as someone that we spoke about, you collect knives. How I, I find it very hard. <laughs> if, if you look at uh, like on eBay and first dibs, all these, all these sites and you, you, how do you stop yourself from buying more chairs or buying more lamps or buying more coffee tables? Because it's quite hard to limit yourself. Yeah, 100%. Because the problem is if I see something that I really love, I get emotionally attached to it. And then I just have to figure out how to have it. Yeah. And so I kind of go through pauses. It's kind of like cooking. I'll cook for three weeks straight every single meal. 
And then I'm just going to order in for two weeks until I miss it again. And with furniture, it's the same thing. So we're in, um, my fiance and I are in a newish apartment. We've been here for just about a year uh, downtown and I moved from Chelsea. And uh, a friend of mine, Andrew Torrey, who's an interior designer, I needed his help when I moved here because I'm not good at putting, I, I, I can see individual pieces and see like what gets me excited and what I want to have, but I'm not good in terms of like putting all of the things together. My brain just doesn't work that way. So he was there to kind of be like, okay, here's a checklist. You need a sideboard. You need a pair of nightstands. You need three small tables that are not over 24 inches. And then within those parameters, I kind of like looked for whatever it was that I needed. Um, so furniture, I've officially, I'm on, I'm on hiatus. I'm not allowed to buy any other piece because nothing can fit. So I actually haven't been on first dibs because it would just be too painful to see things that I love and want to have. Um, so I've been focusing on a bit more wall art right now. Yes. Um, and actually like nice photographs that I like and having them kind of, because I have wall space and, and those are things that you can kind of like move around a little more easily. So, but that part's challenging too, because it's sort of like, I realize that I'm, I'm much more comfortable with photography than I am with paintings. Also, I'll say it again, because I can't afford the paintings that I really want to have. <laughs> so what, what, what would be a painting that you can't afford to have that you would really want? Two that come to mind, um, literally anything by Rothko. And then there's just something so calming. Like I've been emotional in front of his pieces. My ex-girlfriend, actually, when I was, uh, it was before I moved to New York, she was big into art and she was the one who kind of like introduced me to his work. And then the other one is I actually, I've seen his pieces before and I was drawn to them, but I got this like obsession with Sally Mann, who's a brilliant photographer. And, um, so like the quick TLDR version of it is, is that at some point, I think in the nineties or maybe late eighties, she took these like beautiful, like vintagey silver gelatiny photos of her kids um, on their like family property, like right outside of Roanoke in Virginia. And it was super controversial because Calvin Klein came out with a campaign uh, with photos of young children and people were accusing mm. her of sexualizing children. So she got a lot of flack. Was that Brooke um, Shields? Was, was, so that when she was, was that the Brooke Shields one when she was young or was that? Possibly. I'm not I'm not sure but I know the timing kind of like aligned in a really unfortunate way. I think um, I think her, her work was called Immediate Family wasn't it? The Sally Mann yeah, body yeah. of work. I think that yeah. was what you were referring to. Yeah. And the fascinating thing if you haven't read her book, she lived like minutes away from I'm going to butcher his name but hopefully you can correct me Saitwomly, Saitwomly, Saitwomly. Wow. Saitwomly. And they used to go to the local Walmart and sit on a bench and just like people watch. So you have this like what I like one of the most important abstract expressionist artists of our time and this brilliant photographer, two completely different mediums. And they were like best friends. Like how freaking cool is that in the same town in Virginia of all places. And she, she's still alive. Yes. So have you, have you heard of Robert Rauschenberg? You've heard, heard of Robert Rauschenberg, right? Uh, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember visually, but yes. It's like collage work. He, he was like Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg were. Yes, 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 so yes, yes. That yes, sort yes. of period. Well, Robert Rauschenberg and Cy Twombly had an affair. That is something I think that Cy Twombly never discussed, but it is well known. It was like an open secret. But they had this whole thing for a while. And this, I think this was bef- before or after. It was after Jasper Johns and, and Robert Rauschenberg had met designing windows of a department store. So, so a lot of these artists, there's a, a definite Americana you're saying. These are really like mm-hmm. legendary American artists. And you're talking about the photographers. And I've, I've read that you collect Ryan McGinley, New York-based photographer. 
Paul Sapuya. I think I say say his name, Sapuya. He's a, a New York-based photographer. Mm-hmm. So these photographers that you're collecting, have you ever met them, and uh, how did they come into your collection? So McGinley, I've kind of followed his work for a really long time. He had he had a beautiful series of. Um, it was just like these like young, beautiful people swimming in like a lake. And it felt like it was like upstate or something kind of like early on. And that kind of drew me in. And then my my good friend, Melina, um, who is uh, uh, she's basically she's a fashion photographer in Montreal. But now she sources art pieces for for different clients. And she knew that I love McGinley and we'd talk about him and we were sending each other like rare books that we would find. And she knew that I was a massive fan of the Strokes. And so she sent me a piece that was available um, in Toronto of, it was Nikolai Frecher standing at Radio City and it was their first sold out performance. Apparently they weren't even represented yet. So they didn't even have ma- management. It was like right as Is This It came out and they were exploding and it was a sold out show. And the colors are so beautiful. There are these like nice, I love amber. It's a very Polish thing. Old Polish grandmas wear a shit ton of amber. Um, we had loads of it growing up, just like rocks all over the place and so it has this beautiful kind of like antique vintage look to it with just like the lights glowing and you just see his back with his guitar playing to like this crazy show like you feel the energy in that photograph and paul's work paul sapuya's work yeah paul sapuya big fan as well i actually it was at the was it at the guggenheim where they did kind of a comparison of his work and uh and maplethorpe's Oh wow! No, I didn't know that one. Wow! And so, and this was this was early. This was probably like the a year after Queer Eye came out, not even. And then um, I I found a gallery. Ooh, I forget the name, but um, the gentleman running it was Jose Frere. Yeah, and some team team gallery. Team gallery. Thank you. Yeah. And and so I went um, I went to him on like one Saturday, and he showed me a bunch of pieces, and then he sent me like a bunch of options because um, I knew that I wanted to have one. I was just really drawn to it. And then he was like, oh, well, this one's being taken by this museum and this one was already sold. So they're like selling quickly. And I don't know if he was like pulling my leg or not. And then three days later, because I take a while to decide with certain things if I'm not in a very impulsive mood. And he was like, there's one that I forgot to document that wasn't sold. And I was like, oh, it's a sign. I must get it. And so I have that one hanging right here in the den. Oh. But everything, whenever there's like a story attached to it, I always get, I always get really drawn. So I'll tell you another story. So I have this piece that is the most polarizing piece that I have. Um, it's by an artist, I think he's Swedish. His name is Simon Johan. And he did a lot of series of animals. And this is the first, uh, uh, like the first piece of wall art that I ever that I ever purchased. And I was either at Freeze or one of like the big um, armory shows in New York. And I was walking and I was like, I wanted to get like a really large piece to have either in my living room or my bedroom. And I was like, I want something that's like, I was looking for a painting at the time, not understanding budgets or anything. And I was like, I want an abstract expressionist piece that makes me feel and that I'm just going to like stare at and (laughs) fucking love. And then I fall on this photograph of two lions that are attacking each other. And it looked like a National Geographic photo. And I love National Geographic as a kid. I had a subscription to the magazines. My father still has issues from the 80s stacked in his house because he's a bit of a hoarder, but it's fine. That's neither here nor there. Anyway, I fall on this piece and I'm like so taken by it. And I'm staring at it and it makes me like violently uncomfortable, but it's so beautiful. And this guy comes up to me and he's like, oh, so he's like, you're like, you've been standing here for like 15 minutes staring at this piece. And I was like, yeah. And then he's like looking at me and he's like, oh, he's like, you're from that Queer Eye show. I was like, yeah, yeah. And he was like, I know that you wore uh, a t-shirt with Jude, JB, Willem and Malcolm 
of a little life. And I was like, yeah, I'm a big fan of the book. I read it twice. I love to torture myself apparently. And he was like, oh, well, it's actually interesting because I'm actually very good friends with Hanya Yanagihara, um, who's the author of the book, you know, and he gave me this like whole story of how they've known each other for a really long time. And that she has a piece that she bought from his gallery. I believe it was the zebra. I'm not sure. But then he shows me a photo of it. And I'm like, it's a sign. Like, she's one of my favorite people in the whole world. And I love that book so much. I've read it almost three times at this point. And it's a book that like completely changed me. So just the fact that there was that kind of like, I don't know if I was just trying to like be closer to her or it was just like, it felt like a sign from somewhere that I should have this piece. And since I've had it, I decided to put it above my bed in the primary bedroom. Thank God Kevin likes the piece. He does think it's aggressive. But whenever anybody comes into the house and they see it, they're either obsessed with it or they're like, why the hell would you hang that in your house? But it makes me so happy because I love that yeah. it stru- starts, like, strikes up such a conversation. Such in you. That's lovely. It just gets me excited. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah, but the themes of a little life and then linking that to the author of a little life and then having these lines grappling and, and the violence in that and the violence that Jude receives... And the fact that you've read it nearly three times, Anthony, is terrifying. <laughs> I can't. I sat what through it the other night in the West End. I went to the opening night of A Little Life and it was brilliant, but it was so horrible. It was just horrible. Oh, yeah. Horrible. Why, why have you read it so many times? Because, you know, I mean, it certainly has a lot of themes, which that, that's a whole other episode of your podcast altogether. Right. Yeah, yeah. But there's something about like this kinship that these that these four young men had and that they always just kind of like stuck up for each other. And at the end of the day, like for me, it's a story about kindness and it's showing up for for this, this you know, for poor Jude who's like gone through every single hell imaginable in life, but they never give up on him. No matter what, you just keep on showing up. It's unconditional love and it's chosen family. And that's what like sticks out to me so much about it. And also another little brief thing. So that photograph i was looking at it and i was like okay it's really aggressive and so the gallerist came up and he was like you know i have one that's like a little more chill if like you want to that's not up here right now and he showed me this like beautiful moose with these like it was started shedding its antlers and it just had all kinds of moss hanging and so i texted my friend beth um who uh who lives in kansas city and she um i was like i need your opinion on this like she really understands me and i was like i'm trying to figure out like which one i want to get and she was like, well, the moose is like peaceful and serene and the lions are like very constantly in, in conflict. 
And in therapy, every single session, my therapist reminds me, like, you can be conflicted about things. You can be happy and you can be sad about something. And Beth was like, well, the moose is who you want to be. And the lions are like who you are. So like, which one are you drawn to more? And I was like, I chose the path of acceptance. And like, yeah, I'm constantly in conflict with myself, I feel. So I chose the lions. But it's nice in a, in, a, in a bedroom as well, above the bed, if you're a couple, there's something about two lions grappling. It's quite sexy. Yeah. It's really sexy. It is. There's something aggressive about it, but at the same time, so peaceful at the same time. I love that. And I, I love what you're saying about you know, all the friends sticking up for Jude and being there for him. And there must be some themes that run through your job when Queer Eye, your role that you have. There's something where you guys kind of swarm in and protect someone and, and bring someone up and rally to fulfill their self-esteem and to make them feel good about themselves again. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, there must be themes that run through that book specifically and the way that you work on that TV show. Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, you just had me think of um, in season two, I think it was the first episode in a town called Gay, Georgia. We, um, we helped this, this woman, Mama Tammy, who had a gay son who came out. She was part of a pretty conservative Baptist church. She had a lot of, she really struggled to accept him for who he was at first, but then realized that she had to shift her perspective. And since then, now she's been doing public speaking and like trying to reform Baptist churches and just like trying to like accept their LGBTQIA plus kids. But at the end of the episode, that one was actually the last of 16 episodes that we had filmed. So it was basically like my, our first like Queer Eye trip where we spent five months in Atlanta, Georgia. So last episode, we're super exhausted. Mama Tammy also kind of like flipped the entire episode because she basically queer eyed us. She was just one of these like wisdom filled women who kept on like kind of like switching. We would try to do like story points and then she'd be like, no, tell me about your story. And then at the end of the episode, I had like the most guttural, snotty cry of my life. A lot of parts they cut out of that episode, but she was telling us, she was like, you know, God put you on this earth to to do. And I'm not a really religious person, but it still really stuck out. Um, your higher power, whatever you want to call it, put you on this earth to do exactly what it is that you're doing. And in that moment, I started crying hysterically. And I've actually never talked about why it was because I had, I struggled so much. I always wanted to be an actor. And I had this very clear idea in my mind of who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do with myself and my career. And I've often described Queer Eye as like, I kind of got the job that I needed and not the job that I wanted because I didn't want to be on unscripted slash reality television. I didn't want to talk too much about my personal life. That's why I love characters so much because you can give a bit of yourself, but then you can take on some of their facets of their personality. And in that moment, I just realized, I was like, this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing because I was dealing with like imposter syndrome. I'm not a classically trained chef. I'm self-taught. They should have picked somebody else. Am I gay enough? Because I've been in a lot of relationships with women and then back and forth. Like I was questioning myself every single day on set. And in that moment, she just kind of like brought that up. And I don't even remember what your question was, but I was just Mm -hmm. thinking about that. And I had a moment of like, oh, I'm actually doing exactly what it is that I'm supposed to be doing. Well, I was saying about the themes. I was saying about the themes of the book and how that relates to you guys, you Fab Five. Oh, yes. Sorry. Yeah. And then I just had this moment where it was like, these four other Muppets that I'm filming the show with, like I didn't even know them before, but we, we do have such chemistry and we do really love each other. You know, it's like a, it's like a brotherhood. It's like, yeah, we fight and we argue, but we always come back together at the end of a season. We won't speak for a month. Cause it's like, all right, I've seen a lot of you. We literally share a trailer to this day. And then after that, like someone will start the group chat again and it's sort of like, okay, when are we doing the next season? Like I'm ready to, 
I'm ready to see you all again and have like Indian food together on Thursday nights and have everyone over for I heard a really funny on like taco and fajita Tuesday podcast with you. And he kept saying, you're a baby. You're a baby. You're a baby. I was a baby. It's so funny. I love him. Very, very funny. Um, it got me thinking that episode actually about the fact that you're a first um, generation immigrant into Canada and that your family were half Polish. And then I think, is it Belgian? Mostly Polish. My father was just born in Belgium because his family fled there after the war. Um, but he was like eight months old when he um, when he emigrated to Canada. And he's been in between there and the US ever since. So was there ever any discussion or looking back to Poland at all, like in terms of art or craft or culture? Or, or, or was it more like because you've immigrated, you kind of want to forget that in a sense? Because I know sometimes with first um, generation, people sort of look forward rather than back. Sure. Definitely not the forgetting part. Growing up, Polish was my first language. I had to go to Polish school every single Saturday. We only spoke Polish at home until a certain age. And then we kind of, everything just started to like anglicize. But in terms of of my mother, my biological mother, um, she came with a lot of like very old Polish furniture that she got from her mother. So our, our home was definitely filled with a lot of, I call it brown furniture, a lot of like antiques. And then um, I remember above the piano that I used to play, there was a Cossack, I think it's K-O-S-S-A-K, gosh, mm. 1600s? I'm not sure. Um, I'm going to have to look it up. But they're known for painting like beautiful horses. And I loved, me and my oldest sister used to horseback ride growing up. And so we had like a, a, one, a beautiful drawing of, uh, of like the Polish cavalry. And that was something that I learned a lot about, even at a horseback riding camp. And that's why I love this piece so much. I went to this horseback riding camp called Captain Wielzowski's Riding School, and it was in northern Quebec, the province where I was born, which is filled with like super pretentious, like <laughs> everyone dressed up head to toe in Ralph Lauren. And then you had the ratty Polish horseback riding camp that I went to and Miss Captain V, V for W for Wielzowski, he was um, some kind of head of the Polish cavalry, cavalry in World War II. And supposedly he lost his family in the war and then moved to Canada. And then he remarried when I think when he was in his fifties or his sixties and he was like really big into horses. So we okay, have well, that. We need, we need the and, film um, of that. It sounds like that mandolin. What's that, what's that movie about the mandolin? It feels like and, it needs and to you be actually, that version You actually of were it. part of a film as well to do with Poland, which really fascinated me. So to my father in 2015, and that sounded really incredible, that film. So how, how did that happen? That basically happened. Um, there's a girl I know who's part Armenian and part Polish who reached out and I auditioned for it. And it was basically about, there's this really, gosh, I'm trying to remember it right now, but there's, um, this must've been over a decade ago. There was uh, famously a Polish plane um, that was carrying like literally every single member of cabinet, uh, the leader of the country and all every single important person in Poland and they were flying to Russia to commemorate the anniversary of, um, of basically this genocide. And the plane mysteriously went down and every single person yeah. died in it. This is on the anniversary of that, um, of that event. But it was basically, you know, growing up, one thing that we were always told was like Poland was off the map pretty much for 400 years between Germany and between Russia. But we've always kept our culture and our religion and all of that. And this movie kind of like dealt with um, a lot of those themes where they kind of had to like hide their Catholicism and like retain their language. And the story is based on a true story about a girl. The only memory she had was actually of this, uh, this song that her father, of Oitsu, that her father would sing to her. 
Um, and so I ended up playing her father, which I weirdly looked a lot like him. Um, and I had to grow a mustache for it, which took me five months to grow because I don't, um, unfortunately I wasn't blessed with, um, facial hair, <laughs> like the two of you are. So well it was done. a real mustache. I would just like to say. Um, Legend. Well, I want to see that. I'm going to watch well it. Well done, Anthony. Um, is food art? Can you, can you say food is art? I think for me in terms of creativity, definitely. Yeah, I think it is. It's it's something that's that's you kind of like you have a certain set of I'm trying to compare it to like painting, for example, like let's say if I only had five colors, I have to figure out what I want to do with those five colors. And what's the medium? Is it like a, a piece of wood? Is it canvas? Is it something else? Is it like a 3D situation? And you kind of like you, you, you get to work within the constraints. For me, why why I think that food is so creative is because of I always have an idea in my mind. I, I I get something that I get inspired from. Either it's on a travel show or um, or a YouTube video or Instagram, whatever it is. And then I go to the grocery store and I'm like, okay, I've never made this thing before. I look up a couple of recipes just to kind of get the gist of what it's supposed to be like. And then I go to the market and I see what's available. And if I have to get radicchio, but there's no radicchio, then I need some kind of an other bitter green just for like that taste. So I'm going to go with like an endive, which is like a little milder. And then you just kind of like, you kind of have to like figure it out and you have to adapt and kind of like move quickly. Yeah. Well, there's a lovely quote where you talked about, you know, you, you were food obsessed growing up in your family and you were the type of family who would be having breakfast while talking about what you were going to have for dinner. Oh, yeah. And I, <laughs> I love that. It's like you're, you're eating, but you're like always thinking, well, what's the next meal and what are we having? This is important. All of us are like that. Even recently, you know, Kevin and I have been together for three and a half years and he only learned recently so he thinks that i'm this crazy person that goes to a restaurant and i start reading out every single appetizer and he up to this like till a couple of weeks ago he thought that that meant that i wanted to order every (laughs) single thing i just like talking about it i'm like oh look at these these fuyu persimmons with ricotta wow oh and then they put sicilian pistachio it doesn't mean that i want to have it but it's just something that i just love to talk about and with my family it was the exact same thing like we used to go to a restaurant, we'd be sitting there eating something. And then my mother and my father would be like, Oh, like, we should try this differently. Like, I wonder if we grilled this instead of like, you know, sauteed it or like in a cast iron skillet or whatever it is, it's kind of like a summer dish. And then we would go home and like recreate that thing. Oh my God, I love we that. were all like that. We were all kind of I 100% get it from my parents. Are you ever drawn to the still life in art? Are you ever drawn to like images of fruit and, you know, food? And you see lots of paintings and lots of artists, now contemporary artists, are looking back to traditional like still life painting and drawings and mm-hmm. making it contemporary. Like Nicholas Party, for example, is a, is a guy who makes these beautiful pastel works that are like still lives of pears, like rotting and, and bananas and fruit. It's something that I enjoy watching. It's not something that I would need to have at home. Mm. But I think especially if I look at um, what's the what's what's the famous, is it Bacchus? Mm-hmm. Where he's like eating the grapes and yeah, the, the little like boy. that whole. The little boy with the, yeah. yeah. I, the, the little boy, exactly. So like watching yeah. that and like just kind of like looking at like, oh, wow, like a pear was still a pear 600 years ago. It was like very similar. And same with grapes, just kind of like the nothing really changes in that respect. There's something kind of comforting about that, like the staying power of it. 
Yeah, I like that. I've never even thought of that because you, you see an because apple. we've shaped like with mannerism. Yeah. The necks got longer, and like in what was it called with the theatricality and playing with the light and the light and the dark and like shapes of like the idealization of like baby Jesus and like all the forms of change. But like fruit's always been fruit, and it's something. It's like a it's like a Beatles song. Like their staying power. It's just as good today as it was, you know, when it originally came out. And there's something that's comforting in that. That's grounding in like the 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 the, yeah, the constant so nature of it i love that so much i want to talk about before we get on to our final questions with you is um taylor swift you uh did a music video with taylor swift in 2019 the song you need to calm down but this was mm-hmm. uh, kind of happy for you because previously you auditioned five years previous for blank space the music video and i would love mm-hmm. to know what it's like to audition for a taylor swift music video it's and art, what you was asked to do, it's art and the justification that came from them being invited by Taylor to then be in a music video. So for the record, it was never officially like, hey, you're auditioning for a Taylor Swift music video and it's going to be called this. She's understandably very like protective of everything it is that she does. And it was something that I ended up hearing during my second callback. So for anybody who's out there auditioning, like when you get a single callback and you're starting out, and this was the time of like literally stapling your headshot to your resume with the four staples, making sure they're all on the same side and like all that business. <laughs> and it was at Milk Studios, which they were doing like really fancy stuff and meatpacking. So it was like, it was a very exciting thing to do. And I literally showed up there, no script, nothing. And I had to pretend like I was running away from a lion. And the and then on the callback, it was something completely different. So they clearly changed the concept um, a few times. But um, when I went back the second time, I was like, oh, I got this. It's starting to get closer. But then I didn't get it. But then it worked out fine. What was you running from on the second audition? The second one was they wanted, I think it was like, they wanted me to like raise my arms like I was in a fight, like I was screaming, which actually makes sense because for Blank Space, she's in, a, she's in a fight with him. And they're like running around this like beautiful chateau and like loving each other. But arguing and beating the shit out of cars and, and and doing all that kind of business. But yeah, it was completely different the second time. And it was either one of those, like, do they know what they want? Or are they just trying to like throw everybody off and they just want to see like very specific expressions on our faces? It's like, it's, it, it, it's kind of like auditioning for a commercial where it's like very vague and you don't really get the yeah, full yeah, context yeah, yeah, totally. and you just have to focus and on what the about, thing that what, you're what, being what about asked the actual to do. Video you it's ended so up... random, isn't it? The things you've been asked to do. The job that I actually got, that was completely different altogether because we weren't even asked to audition we were just invited to which was like such a great honor obviously and um but we didn't know the name of the song we didn't know what the song sounded like because the playback was only playing in her ear this is why i love her so much and she was there directing the whole thing running the entire show like a true boss and somehow with all of these hundreds of people and tents because of course there were helicopters who wanted to see it so everything had to like stay super hidden and secretive and for her to star in her own music video and then like be part of directing it and running the entire ship and to maintain cool and still stay so professional and kind and positive during the entirety of the thing was like i i just i would not be capable of doing that and you would you wouldn't know what the song was you just sort of hear a lip syncing you we had a tea party moment and then she was just kind of like lip syncing to it and we didn't really know what she was saying she just had a tiny little um earbud in her ear just so that she could understand but no one else knew anything 
This is, is great. Is this the most chaotic interview? No, 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 had, no. It's brilliant. Way, I, I feel like I'm changing topics every two seconds. No, I love it. Well, I think I am as well. I keep going like we're going from Taylor Swift. And now I want to ask you, like Paul Sipuya's photography is very queer. Mm-hmm. Is there is there anything in you that feels like you want to collect more queer arts because it feels more personal in some ways to your life? Or is that something that you're only recently discovering? I think for me, it's sort of... I feel like I have, you know, since I'm collecting certain pieces, I uh, queer art and any Canadian native or First Nations artist are really important to me as well. I don't want to just collect them because they are queer or Canadian, but at the same time, there is kind of a pull there. And what's been nice is that it's kind of opened me up to exploring different artists who who are queer or who happen to be Canadian. Like there's um, uh, Dan Bertinsky, who's like a wonderful like eco photographer who's doing it before like anybody else was. And I have this beautiful piece of this structure in India that's a building just kind of like looking down and they're all and it, it looks like a painting. But when you look closely, it's actually a photograph. And with Sapuya, it's the same thing where it was something about the composition and the camera lens. It made me extremely uncomfortable when I first saw it. It just felt very there was like this exhibitionistic I think that's a word, quality to it that I was just kind of drawn to in the reflection. And I was confused about the composition, which I really liked because it just made me want to engage and stare. And so that's kind of what pulled me in. And, you know, the fact that he's a queer artist is obviously like incredible and important. And I do feel like I have a responsibility there, but I don't just lean in on that, if that makes sense. It feels like you're really drawn to work that troubles you like you were saying about the, the lines, you found it very kind of troubling and that's what you lent into and, and the photography of Paul, like you couldn't work it out and it troubled you and that's what you let into. That's a really interesting finding art. It, 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 it unsettles you in some way and then you want to need, you need to work it out maybe or, or understand why that is and, and live with it. I think it, it depends on the artist. I think the troubling stuff is definitely, for me, that's leaning into acceptance of like who I am, because I feel like I am so conflicted with my feelings. If something makes me uncomfortable, I'm very drawn to that because I want to know what that discomfort is. My therapist always says, if it's hysterical, it's historical. So I always kind of like want to like look back and be like, what is it about that that affects me so much? Like an element of nostalgia, like with Bala and, you know, the little prince of, of, of kind of like that comparison just kind of coming up because it ties me to who I am and where I came from. And then with other things, it's like there's something aspirational. Like with Rothko, there's just a, this meditative calmness in his pieces of just mm-hmm. a square that's just like floating so beautifully. And it's so simple, but it still brings up so many feelings. And I meditate every morning, but nine times out of 10, I'm thinking about what my day is going to be like, what time my dog is going to come back from her dog camp. Am I going to make her anything to eat or is she going to eat kibble? I just get like super distracted. So there are other pieces that are just like, oh, like that's the person that I kind of like want to be. Can you explain that it's hysterical, it's historical? I love that. But is that in relation to yeah. his, like humor hysterical? Like if it's really funny, it's historical? or No, no. Just like hysterical in terms of maybe it's a more American definition of the word. But let's say I have, I'm going to come up with like an example and it might be true or might be not, but we'll just figure it out because I'm thinking out loud. So let's say I have... The fact that I'm on, I was having a, a discussion, you know, my, my therapist has been with me since just before Queer Eye came out. So I kind of had to remedy the fact that I was giving up my anonymity. Um, and a mentor friend of mine actually told me, a mutual friend of ours, Klaus, 
told me when Queer Eye came out and my life had changed. He was like, you know, it's kind of like losing fame is kind of like losing your virginity. Once it's taken away from you, you're never really going to get it back. So you have to just accept that you're a changed person as opposed to just trying to be the same because everything else around you changes. And I was trying to figure out, I was like, and this is a discussion that we still have all the time where it was like, why do I want to be on TV? I consider myself like a really anonymous person, very private about a lot of things. Yet at the end of the day, whether it's an actor on a scripted show or a movie or even theater or unscripted, like I'm wanting to put myself out there. And what's that about? So with Carol, we've kind of like looked back on childhood and it's like, look, I was the youngest of three. I moved to West Virginia with my parents when I was pretty young and I suddenly became like the only child. My father was working a lot. My mother was traveling a lot. And so I didn't really feel seen. So there's some kind of a relationship there with wanting to be seen. And then it makes me think of this awesome Instagram account called Niche, um, underscore, underscore, N-I-T-C-H. And he does these like great quotes with like beautiful photographs or, or paintings or whatever. And there's a quote by Tom York, and I'm going to completely butcher it. But it's something along the lines of, when I walk into a room, I want everyone to see me, but I want to be left alone. And it's that weird kind of like conflicting feeling of like, I love being in entertainment and I love what I do and so many parts of it, but there are parts of it that make me violently uncomfortable. So it's like looking back at like a behavior now where like if I get triggered by something that, you know, Kev tells me where his intention wasn't bad about it, but I have like an adverse reaction to it. I try to think back on like childhood and it's sort of like what brought me to that place of having such a strong reaction that actually has nothing to do with what it is that he's saying. That's only, it, it's coming from something else. And I always think that if I have an extreme, so the hysterical part is an extreme response in the present is probably because I was nurtured to, to react that way. And if I look at my past, I can figure it out. And that's why I love looking at the past so much because once I explain it, I realize that it's not this thing that's just permanent. Like I can't change it. I was, I, I was molded to become that or to have that reaction and that I'm more in control or there's more of a possibility of me being able to change that behavior, if that makes sense. It totally does. Yeah. I mean, I'm just listening to you and thinking about my own shit. So thank you for <laughs> thank you Everything. for sharing that. Yeah. I mean, it's You're our new therapist. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I love that. Well, this has just been amazing. We're gonna get into our final questions now, but could I'm really struck, Anthony, by um by also how romantic you are in a kind of I don't mean romantic in like one-to-one romance I mean more like romantic you, you seem like quite a romantic loving kind of person even in the art that you like and I don't know it's a good thing like it's not sentimental it's definitely romantic it's really cool wait what's the difference between sentimental and romantic I think sentimental can be a bit like cheesy almost like we say cheesy in England like um mm-hmm. yeah like a bit you know whereas mm-hmm. I think romance is a bit more like you know, the big things in life and caring about each other, which is kind of your response to that book you were talking about earlier. Oh, yeah, and, absolutely. Um, and also, I want to thank you because when when I found out that your family history was Polish, I started looking up Polish artists. And there's a sculptor from wartime who was called Alina. I've totally forgotten her surname, but it's something like, do you know uh, who I mean, Ron? No. She does like the lip sculptures. They're like lips made out of wax or something. Oh, I don't know them. They're oh, really wow. amazing. Look, If you look up Alina... A-L-I-N-A. And she made these amazing sculptures. And for a while, a lot of New York galleries were showing her. Hmm. Yeah, she's really, really incredible. Okay, so it's Sizapoksnikau. I don't know how you say that. Sizapoksnikau? Yes. 
And um, she was an amazing, amazing artist. And I really recommend checking her out because I think you'll really respect what she does. She made a lot of sculptures of like body parts and lips. And, oh, wow. Um, and um, it was a kind of a response to the Holocaust because she was a survivor of the Holocaust. Mm. Yeah. So there you go. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. Well, anyway, so we're going to go to our final questions. Um, if you could do an art heist, you could steal any work of art in the world for yourself, what would it be and why? And you can bleed this into design as well. What is the ultimate, uh, like, treasure? Okay. I have two. Mm-hmm. So one would be, oh, no, 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 no. One is antiquity. So let's just get rid of that. That's we not... want that as well. Yeah, we're, we're going to bring the vans with us. So I, I was I was in the antiquity wing at the Met, and um, I saw this beautiful, it was like a, 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 a super patinated uh, uh, copper helmet from, uh, I think it's called an Oplita, which this um, artist, Miguel Barakal, who does these awesome puzzle sculptures that are in brass that break apart into like 200 pieces. He had a beautiful one as well. And it's of like a young Spartan warrior. But I don't know if I would want to have that because I saw one once at a gallery that was for sale. And apparently when they're fully formed and they're not damaged in any way, it means that they were taken out of the tomb of the young warrior which I definitely don't want that kind of a juju. And if they're broken, it means he was killed in combat, which do I want that kind of juju as well? So let's pivot away from that. But that was a little moment that we just had together and I'm going to move away from it now. I think that if I could pick any single piece, it would Mm. be between a Twomley and a Rothko. And I wouldn't, I'm not 100% sure which. But a big big size And if it were Rothko, it'd be a big size work. Wow. And I might even replace the lions and put those maybe like in my dining room and I would have it above my bed. Because to have a Rothko in your bedroom? Tension. Oh. Hot. That would be I, my dream. Know someone that, I know someone that has a Rothko, like a real Rothko. And it's um, it's kind of like pink and yellow. And it is one of the most beautiful paintings I've ever seen in a home. Like it's breathtaking and it's huge. It's like... I don't know, 10 foot high. Or Pink and yellow are probably two of my least favorite colors and I would still take it. <laughs> well, because it'd be problematic. Yeah. It would be troubling for you. That's why you'd be like, I, I'm really stressed with this painting. Yeah, I need exactly. it. I need it in my life. So we know your least favorite colors, but Rob, the next question is. <laughs> so what is your favorite color? Hunter green, like a dark, rich hunter green. That's like very, just makes me think of, trees in pennsylvania or vermont in the summer and second place not that you asked would be like a nice dark blue because now i'm thinking picasso blue period yeah and that's it those are my top two i was gonna say vermont in the summer i've also done that i used to go there because that's where ben and jerry's is isn't it my father's house is 0.4 miles away and in the winter you can snowshoe and go eat a shit ton of ice cream and then snowshoe back and sit in front of the fireplace (laughs) Yep. We used to drive from Montreal to go there. That's funny. Yeah, that it's less than two hours away. It's a great yeah, little yeah, trip. Yeah. I, I, want, oh, I also perfect. want to know the piece of furniture for your art heist, if it's a design heist. What is the piece? What is the, like, the dream Ooh, furniture this piece? Is a good... Of course, of course. It would be the Lalan Rhino yeah. desk bar. Of course. <laughs> is that the one with the square cut out of it? It's the square cut and it actually lifts and it has all of these little compartments. Mm. And in second place, it would be um, the gorilla fire pit. Yeah. 
or one of the monkeys, literally any Lalan, even the wacky ones with like the rabbit with a cabbage as a head, like I don't, or the, or the fish <laughs> with the hole in the middle, like yeah. even like the weird Dolly-esque shit, I would still, I would welcome. The thing is, I, I think that's still really artistic as a, as a design kind of furniture piece, because I, I, fe I feel like Lalan's actually inspired loads of artists as well. I'm sure. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Love that. That's fantastic. What's, um, what's the best advice you've ever received in terms of your sort of art Ooh. or collecting or, or in terms of, I don't know, your creativity? So when I started kind of like looking for pieces more in a more serious capacity and was considering buying, I kept on asking friends in the art world or who had collections about um, like, oh, is this going to be like, I love this piece and I'm really drawn to it, but I don't just want to blow a bunch of money on a piece that's not going to be worth anything someday. So like, does it have, like, is this going to be a good investment piece in the future? And anybody who I respect pretty much said, like, don't ever treat it as an investment. Buy if it's a piece, obviously do a little bit of homework, but buy it if it makes you feel something, if you're deeply passionate about it. Like that should be your number one reason, first and foremost. You'll never be happy. You'll never follow. See, yeah, that's exactly. Romantic. Anthony, that is a romantic response. I love this. But I love that advice because then it took all the pressure <laughs> off and it was like, okay. That's like, so yeah, true. Exactly. Buy it if it makes me feel something. And that's exactly. good enough. Exactly. Buy what you love. Live the life you want to live. It is scary yeah. though when you start spending money on art. You do look to people who are collecting and, and ask their advice. And I started, when I started spending earnings on art, I would look at people who had art advisors or I'd look at their collections and I would go, oh, well, they're collecting really minimal work. That's what I should be collecting. I wasn't drawn to it, but I'd be like, that's what I should be doing, I guess, because I really like this, but no one else is really looking at that. So you sort of second guess your taste and assume that what everyone else is doing, they're doing it right and you're doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. Whereas it takes right. a long time to work out what your own taste is. And as soon as you do, it does, you're right. It frees you up. You feel like a freedom to collect and be interested in whatever you want totally just to do it for the joy of it and to be able to do it as opposed to the pressure of trying to like make the right decision whatever the hell that means totally well this has been incredible wow. what is going on for you next what what have we got to look forward to um well i'm going to be taking my dog on a walk in about an hour when she comes back from her dog camp which is very exciting <laughs> thank you and then I'm going to be making dinner tonight. I'm going to make um, a wonderful salad with a bunch of bitter greens and what's left of like winter citrus here in New York. And I'm going to saute some shrimp with my stepmom's favorite spice blend. It's called Colombo. It's a bit of curry and turmeric and a little bit of paprika and a bit of cumin, I think. So I'm going to saute those. And over the next few months, we have a new season of Queer Eye coming out. And I have another project that I can't talk about, but that I'm extremely excited about, which combines two of my top favorite passions. And that's all I can say at this point. But um, that's going to be announced very soon. Oh, I think we can work that out. Well, Brilliant. I came to a quote through you from uh, by Anthony Bourdain. And his quote was, your body is not a temple. It's a playground. And I feel like mm. you epitomize that. And that's really lovely energy that this this conversation's had and i feel like that you bring to the world and your gifts and it's been a playground talking to you today and thank you so so much for that it really has thank you thank no you anthony both. before before you head off really quickly i forgot to ask you has there ever been any cookbooks that 
the art in it has really inspired you or like the art of cookbooks. Do you know what I mean? Because a friend of mine, Danae Moores, just made a new vegan cookbook called Plentiful. It's coming out later this year. And the design of it is so beautiful. And I couldn't work out whether it's like a new thing where people are like creating these incredibly innovative designs and photography and art to do with the cookbook genre. And I know you've made your own amazing cookbook not long ago, but um, totally. I, I, I think, wow. So I, I'm, even though I'm a very, this is where I conflict, where I contradict myself again, I'm a very visual person. So I'm obsessed with artists. Like, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Lila Gohar. She does installations at like different fashion shows of, she'll do like a croquant bouche, which is usually profiteroles, but she'll do it with Brussels sprouts. And then she'll have just a perfect, like a beautiful burrata with the longest salumi ever, just kind of like spread apart like a table at like an Hermes show or something. And she does all these like incredible, or she has this chicken soup, which is just a perfect poached chicken breast that just looks like a teardrop, the skin removed with a single piece of carrot, a single onion, and like two little baby potatoes in like a clear broth without anything else. That is not me. I'm a lot messier, but I love looking at that. Mm. But with cookbooks, I'm always drawn to text more. So anybody who's a storyteller and the first one, the first real cookbook that I ever got as a gift was um, Nigella Lawson's Feast. And the way that she writes, like there's something so sensual and poetic and romantic about the way that she writes about food that I think that's been inspiring to me since, you know, since I really started cooking. Also, your, your comment about Bacchus really made me think about Vanessa Beecroft, who did those amazing photographs and performances um, with like dinners and kind of like nudity and all kinds of intense. Vanessa Beecroft, B-E-E? I think it is, yes. Yeah. Okay, I'll look her up. Russ is looking at me like he's never. No, heard no, of no. It. I just I like I like that reference. I didn't think of that. Yeah, yeah. But we can all buy your book, Anthony in the Kitchen or Anthony Let's Do Dinner. You are a New York Times bestseller with those, so they are legit. So everybody uh, listening, please go and if you're into this, go and, and what, get one. What's your Instagram, Anthony? A N T O N I. Oh, like share. This. I didn't realize that. So direct. Just like share. Like Madonna, share. <laughs> Anthony. Yes, we are. We are. We are truly one in the same. That's fantastic. The Holy Trinity. For everybody listening, go to uh, our talker at talker and see images of all the works we've been discussing. Go to at Anthony, uh, just like at Kylie, uh, and see all of Anthony's world. And please just keep following. I guess that's it. Bye. Bye. See you soon, Anthony. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com